But for a long while they sang only each alone, all but few together, while the rest hearkened, for each comprehended only that part of the mind of Iluvatar from which he came, and in the understanding of their brethren they grew but slowly, yet ever as they listened they came deeper understanding and increased in unison and harmony. Welcome to Lore of the Rings, a, uh, a sub-creation of the Card Game Cooperative and the Critical Encounters podcast. On these shows, we're going to delve deeply into the lore of the cards and into the story being told uh, you know, to and by the players through the various quests and scenarios. So uh, come pull up a chair, um, you know, get, a, get a fire roaring in the grate, and uh, in this hall you will hear many songs and tales, assuming you can stay awake. Uh, I'm James, I'm one of your hosts. Uh, with me this afternoon, as as always, is Simon. How are you today? Good afternoon. I'm doing good. I'm excited. Great stuff. And then a uh, a special treat for uh, for these Law of the Rings episodes. We've got uh, got a couple of guests from from the other side of the Atlantic. Uh, with Dan and Steve. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Good morning. Yeah. Morning. You guys are in the afternoon, yeah. and we're in the morning. But yeah. So for for any of our listeners who. Uh, uh, who might not be familiar? Who uh, who who are you guys, and what uh, what brings you to to this cast today? Uh, I'll go first, Steve. Uh, so I'm Daniel. What brings me to this cast is um, my joy and love and passion for this game and this world. Um, I don't have the encyclopedic knowledge that I imagine the three of you do, um, but I but I love this stuff. I've been playing the game since it came out. Um, I I bought it at a store on the day on the day of release. Um, and haven't looked back, so I'm very excited to be here. Excellent stuff. Yeah, I I, uh, I really wanted to, to take a look at some of the lore in this card game for the Lord of the Rings, and I said, oh man, who who would be great to sit down and talk to this with? And here we are. I found three wonderful co-hosts to do this with. Um, I'm really looking forward to delving deeply into that with you guys. Uh, like, I have been playing it since the end of the core cycle, like right when Casa Doom stuff came out. So, mm. um, not the entire time, but long enough. So, and I, back then you could just buy everything at once. So, I kind of got the core in the first cycle right away and off we went. So, but you were just waiting for the dwarves to, uh, to, to kind of really kick into gear to get started. I just didn't know it existed. Um, and one day I had to walk into the store, I'm like, what's this Lord of the Rings thing? And here we go. So, yeah. Uh, how about you guys? I had a question for you guys. You've read the books. How old were you? Have you read them all? I personally read The Hobbit somewhere in my, like, somewhere around 12. And um, I've read it a bunch of times. I'm currently reading The Hobbit to my eight-year-old right now. And, uh, you know, I've I've gone through a bunch of the history of Middle-earth books and Unfinished Tales. Not everything, but most of it. So, some of it's a little dry. but. How about you guys? So, in terms of the Hobbit, Hobbit, I struggle struggle to remember exactly. But for for, for me, Lord of the Rings in particular, I, I do remember quite clearly. Um, so I I started university in in two thousand and one. So kind of just as the just as the films were coming out, and and I remember you know getting to the end of the year, and you've got that kind of month of we've finished, but we just need to kind of hang around and wait for results. And I remember going out buying the the full work and it was like a, it was like a proper seven volume set so you know rather than three that they're, they're typically chunked into kind of 
each of what we think of as the three stories into two and then a separate volume for the appendices. And yeah, just sitting there for kind of three, four weeks and, and yeah, just reading straight through the whole lot. Um, yeah, we've seen the films many, many times. And my wife, who is is also a bit of a geek, uh, convinced me that I should I should try the Silmarillion and kind of first read through. I wasn't, wasn't particularly convinced. I, I just had a piece of paper kind of listing who the Valar were because every other page I'd get to a name and think, who the heck's that? <laughs> um, I have to keep referencing back. But actually, these days, that that's the one I return to, just that that kind of whole... Yeah, the sort of the the epic story of of, of the Noldor and yeah, the kind of the all the stuff that went on in Valinor and coming back to Middle Earth. It's just just such a brilliant story. Um, I've I've kind of dabbled with the the histories and sort of read read odd bits and pieces here. Um, we've uh, we've just had the the nature of Middle Earth uh, released over here, which I got from my, got my wife for her birthday last week, and I was kind of flicking through it last night ahead of the the cast and thinking who who other than Tolkien could you you know could you pick up a work about the world that they created and find a chapter just entitled beards <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't you know I just don't think anyone else goes goes quite that that deep into it so uh yeah I think uh, I think that there's, there's going to be plenty of material for us to to find to talk about hopefully I'm looking forward to the beard episode yeah. you have to wait till we get to the dwarves <laughs> how about you Simon uh, so, again, I don't really remember with The Hobbit, um, probably reasonably young. Lord of the Rings, I would have read about the same time as James. Um, I, I remember I read, I finished Fellowship of the Ring on the same day that I went to go and see it in the cinema. And I think I would have been about 12, just to, you know, boast about my age there. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, Daniel, we're, we're the old men on the show, apparently. Were you, yeah. were, you sad, were you saddened and confused when you got to the cinema and there was no Tom Bombadil? Yes, and it still upsets me to this day. Also, no Glorfindel. Yeah, that, that, that is a more... I, I think I'm, I'm equally upset by both of those. Um, but yeah, so uh, I've I read The Lord of the Rings several times through my teenage years and then kind of had a bit of a gap... Um, and didn't really pick it back up until I started playing this game. Uh, and I reread, so I reread The Hobbit last year. Uh, and then because I'm apparently crazy, I went from The Hobbit into The Silmarillion. Uh, which, so I've only read it the once. I still find it confusing. I'm preparing myself for a reread. Um, I did enjoy it though, the bits of it that I could, you know, kind of grasp what was happening. Uh, and then I reread The Lord of the Rings again after that. Um, so I'm definitely not massively up there on the law stakes, but I probably know more than your average person. <laughs> the films, I get. So the films, uh, I haven't watched that much at all. Uh, I watched them when they were released. I had them all on VHS when they came out on VHS. Oh, and nice. I watched them a fair few times then on Hungover Mornings. Um <laughs> But again, when I had that big gap, I didn't really watch any of the films then either. Uh, and now I'm currently working my way through the extended editions. You make it sound like there are other editions. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so that's I mean, the other reason why I'm working my way through the extended editions is because they're the only ones that exist. 
Well, in, in fairness, actually, there is uh, there is one other version of, of the films, which I remember watching on holiday a few years ago. I'm not entirely sure I'd recommend it, but we were we were staying in, a, in an apartment in France and we were kind of looking through the DVDs that the owners had left in the in, in the flat for you know, what we could watch in the evening, found Lord of the Rings. Um, and I had the interesting experience of watching Lord of the Rings with every five, ten minutes, my wife saying, of course, we've just missed the bit in which this would have happened, or you can't go straight to that. They've missed that bit that should come between these two scenes. <laughs> I thought about getting, you know, getting it like recorded as an alternative, uh, alternative commentary that could be offered. Uh... <laughs> That's nice. But that does beg the question of if they do an extended edition, why didn't they put Tom Bombadil in it? Mm. Yeah, that is a good question. Um, so I probably wouldn't have mentioned this if James hadn't have brought it up, but it has set me off on a bit of a rant now because I feel oh. like the old forest and the barrows and the whites, I find all of that part to be fantastic and thrilling in the book. And the fact that it's not in the film does the whole thing a massive disservice. Yeah, a lot does happen there with the characters and the ring and um, them getting their their daggers and things like that. Well, I think from a story perspective, and it's definitely from a film's way of building a story, the one thing that that Bombadil thing does is takes away the agency of the main characters. And so while that's charming in the book, I think that early in the film, sometime of like... I don't know, God from the machine thing happening almost immediately that it, I don't know. It would, it would have, we would, wouldn't we have lost confidence in the main characters if they almost immediately needed that type of rescue and were so helpless? I suppose, but they were supposed to be so helpless kind of early on. I don't, not, not in the film's presentation of them. Okay. You know what I'm saying? I'm talking from like the, the, the story the movies tell is, Markedly different. Yeah, that's true. Right, and like what they do to Aragorn, but like it's a great story. I love the movies, but it's not it's not a strict adherence or adaptation to the novel. And like you know, moving things around, so having having Frodo come up with more of the ideas, which I think I can't was Merry or Pippin. He nicks a couple of lines from just to yeah try and establish Frodo as this more more knowledgeable, more capable right. character much earlier on in the timeline, rather than the the point being how dramatic the change is by the time they, they do return to the Shire and have the big showdown with Sharky. Right. And, you know, like Pippin in the book is capable and interesting right from the get-go. <laughs> so, you know, he's... <laughs> so, that, yeah, they make some changes, and I think Bombadil would throw a weird wrench into the, the tale that the movie tells. Though I did miss him. I thought John Goodman would have been a great Tom Bombadil. I see. I I always see Tom Baker as Doctor Who as uh, uh, as Tom Bombadil. Definitely, I can see that. Jelly baby. <laughs> <laughs> what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about this card game and we're gonna reference the books, so we don't have to worry about the movie adaptation, right? We're gonna use the books as our reference for these shows. I'm gonna have to go through and delete all of my notes. Steve, are you saying you don't want my origin story? All right, fine. I know yours. <laughs> Go ahead, Daniel. Wow, is this how it's going to be? No, um, it'll be a little okay. different than on our other show. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Where Simon sh- showed off his age as as a young person, I I'll I'll go the other route. Um, so in 1981, 
my father got for me the basic red box of D&D, if you all remember that one, or have seen pictures. Um, and I was reading through it and showing it to him. He's like, oh, this sounds like uh, Lord of the Rings stuff. And I hadn't heard of that yet. So then I, that was my introduction to The Hobbit. And the, I definitely read that first. And then I think I was in middle school when I first tackled um, The Lord of the Rings. And I didn't like it. And I didn't like it because it wasn't like The Hobbit. And I was still kind of young. And so, and then the movies, and then I got deeper into other fantasy stuff like Dragonlance and Terry Brooks's stolen um, Tolkien works, like Sword of Shannara and stuff like that. Which, reading that later, you see how derivative it is, and you wonder how he didn't get sued. But anyway, um, it wasn't until the movies came out that I looked back at the books uh, and got really deep into the lore again. So, so that's it. That's and I, yeah, just, I, I, I'm interested to explore with you guys the differences between the movies and the books because they inform each other in interesting ways. I think. Yeah, and then how does the game extrapolate that information? All right, so that's us. What are we gonna do? What are these episodes gonna be like? I think what our listeners want to understand is we're gonna ramble on a bit. Uh, we're gonna look. <laughs> <laughs> so strap in. Uh, we're going to talk about the time period in this episode. Uh, we're going to focus in on the very first scenario. So we're going to talk a lot of Mirkwood. What's Mirkwood? What's, it go- what's going on in Mirkwood? When are we? And then we're going to pick apart the lore between locations and quest stages and enemies, treacheries, all that sort of stuff. And we're going to move from scenario to scenario uh, or region to region, depending. And uh, should we get started, guys? Should we like get into it now? Please. Sure. And, you know, I think it's probably worth saying at, at this point, you know, even if you've, you know, you've just picked up the uh, the game for the first time, maybe, you know, seen the films once, you know, you hope, hopefully that, you know, there's going to be a lot here that's still interesting for you. This isn't a, you know, this isn't a cast where we expect you to have passed some kind of Tolkien quiz before you, before you listen along, you know, we're hoping this is going to be you know, something that, that anyone who enjoys playing the game will, will be able to listen to and, and hopefully get, maybe a bit more appreciation of you know, just the I, th- I think the the genuine knowledge and love of tolkien's world that that so many of the designers have had oh yeah definitely uh, it should inform your gameplay hopefully it will enhance the enjoyment of the story that's taking place in your game because that's for me that's one of the big reasons to play this game if it was a different theme i don't think i would have ever picked it up and played it right um agree Seeing Gandalf on the box cover, it's like, ooh, I want to play Lord of the Rings. If it was, I don't know, uh, the guys from Dune, which is a big popular thing right now, I don't think I'd have picked it up because it's not a an IP that had interested me. So Now I'm just thinking, I wonder when they're going to release a Dune LCG. <laughs> Soon enough. <laughs> so putting us in the place and time of the game, we'll, we'll, say what, we'll, we'll say what the designers had. We'll let you know what the designers had to say about where they're putting this game, and we can talk a little bit about what that means after. So the core book tells us, The Lord of the Rings, the card game, is a game of heroes, perilous journeys, and adventures set in the lands described in the epic fantasy masterpiece created by J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. In this game, players take on the role of a party of heroes who are attempting to complete dangerous quests. These quests take place during a time span of 17 years, from when Bilbo celebrates his 111th birthday and Frodo's 33rd, to days just prior to Frodo's leaving the Shire. Instead of directly retelling the classic stories that have previously been narrated, this game provides players with a variety of elements, 
characters, settings, enemies, events, items, artifacts, scenarios that allow them to embark upon new adventures and share new experiences with the beloved The Lord of the Rings characters and settings during this period of Middle-earth history. So I think it's it's probably worth, you know, picking up on something that's that's stated there but, you know, if you've if you've only seen the films and not read the books you might not be aware of, um it's yeah, simply the fact that obviously Bilbo celebrates his birthday leaves the Shire. In the books there there is a whole 17 years yeah. between that and Frodo leaving and then Asgul showing up and and everything else. So, yeah, I think that's something that you you wouldn't necessarily but you certainly wouldn't notice from from Peter Jackson's version of Middle Earth and yet it actually gives us quite a quite a big time frame in into which to uh to to kind of set the, these stories you know it, it's very close to the events of, of of the War of the Ring and all that but yeah there's, there's actually quite a lot of time for things to right. happen and people to go on adventures etc before the land completely descends into open war and I apologize for not saying 111st birthday. Um, I just want to go on record as apologizing for that. Um, so do you feel like the designers have stuck within that 17-year window in every, in every scenario, every campaign? No, not with some of the heroes that we get, I think. Right. Um, I mean, they've done a decent job, and maybe the spirit of when we are, but there's definitely a little lack, like, Theodred is like, uh, you know, he he might be one who is, is tricky with the time period, or if you get somebody who's a little older or a little younger, it, and maybe they're not quite the age they seem to be on their cards. Right. Um, you know, it's it's tough. Obviously, there's also kind of the whole issue that you know, outside of the, the kind of basic core box cycle and deluxe model that that most of the game operated on, we did then get the saga quest. So you know, we very explicitly have two boxes which boot us back 60, 70 years to, you know, Bilbo's adventures in The Hobbits. Sure. And lots of people then took Thorin and just stuck him in a dwarf deck because he's good in a dwarf deck and yeah, Philly and Killian, <laughs> all of these people who were, were were buried 60 years before the 111st birthday party even happened. Right. Um I think it's inevitable that they they were going to do that. I mean, those are characters that people like and love and and want to have in the game. Um, I don't think it really takes away from the game at all. It definitely, especially if you're going to play the saga boxes, your your time period has changed, right? And then you're able to say, well, what if Thorne's not dead and he goes along with Bilbo on another adventure? Um, right. The beauty of the game is in the what if moments. I think. Right. They had like some real trouble mentally getting around that when I first started playing this. I was like, I want to play thematic decks for the quest that I'm doing. And mm. then I slowly realized, like, I'm not going to be able to do that and either A, win, or B, enjoy this game because I'm forcing myself <laughs> to play things that just, you know, I had a limited card pool and it was like, if I go by that, I'm just, I'm screwed. I'm just going to put, again, and Thorin is the main one there, really. I'm just like, Yep, I'm putting Thorin in that deck because there's two other dwarves. I've got dwarf allies. Let's do this. You have to be able to suspend your need for that that specific time period theme in order to enjoy the game. I agree. But one thing I like that the designers did was how they designed the first um, campaign. I thought it was really smart to go with the capture of Gollum because that's one of the main things that happens in that 17-year break, right? Yeah, yep. 
and and it's wildly important to everything. So it's pretty nice that they started with that because <laughs> it definitely grounds us. It makes it very clear that we're in that gap of time that that, like you said, James, the movie does not explore. Right. It's like Bilbo leaves and then Frodo runs, though there is some time that passed. We don't know how much in the film. But Elijah Wood is not 51 years old when he leaves the cabin. In, in the movies? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. If he is, he's, he's wearing pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> well, if he does have possession of the ring, we know that. True. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, speaking of time periods, let, let's look at some of the events going on, where that corset starts uh, based on the time. So, like you said, the quest for the Lonely Mountain, That's the. this is all the third age. And that's 2941. Okay. And, but our story really doesn't take place until, well, Bilbo celebrates his birthday 3001 in the third age. There's always a lot of years in this, but our game is starting then in 3018 to kind of keep that in our minds. So just to kind of put us in the right mindset, here's a quote from the Silmarillion about the rings of power in the third age. But after many years, When well-nigh a third of that age of the world had passed, a darkness crept slowly through the wood from the southward, and fear walked there in shadowy glades. Fell beasts came hunting, and cruel and evil creatures laid their snares. Then the name of the forest was changed, and Mirkwood it was called, for the nightshade lay deep there, and few dared to pass through, save only in the north, where Thranduil's people still held the evil at bay. So way back in 1050... Of the third age so this is like 2000 years prior to our story in the game it's still called greenwood the great right or aaron gallon and that is when it has a shadow fall on it and people start calling it mirkwood or tar in daedalos the forest of great fear so for like nearly 2000 years the forest has fallen from a lush green place of life to the corrupted and sick place we know in our game as the dark and foul driving forest of the wilderlands uh, and it's not just dark in color, but, you know, also in its sense of gloom so, and everything else that's happening there. That's something that um, has a very accelerated timeline if you watch the Hobbit movies. Yes. <laughs> it's about half an hour, isn't it? Yeah. But, <laughs> um, but in the in the real timeline, it's about 50 years later when people discover, the wise discover that an evil power has made a stronghold at Dol Guldur, and they think it might be a Nazgul. Again, that's like 2,000 years earlier. So who are we talking about when we say the wise? Right, so we're talking about lore masters, the the White Council, Gandalf, Saruman, Radagast, Elrond, Galadriel, maybe Thranduil, the other two, Ishtari, you know, maybe there are purple blue wizards, maybe there are blue wizards. Um, when they just off further east getting really stoned. I think by then they were, yeah. Yeah. yeah, maybe, but they might still be involved, right? They could still be considered the wise. Um, I thought they land and just disappear. Yeah. Uh, Kirdan. Kirdan would be one of the wise, right? He's been ar- alive since, like, the beginning of Elves. Uh, yep. And you might be talking, there might even be some men some uh, involved in that in Gondor, uh, Masters of Lore and that sort of thing. From From that kind of realization that there is a there's a dark power uh, taking root in Dol Guldur. It's again, it's it's getting on for a thousand years. It's kind of 2060 before the wise realize that. No, actually, we think we think this might be Sauron 
that's in there that's active in in Dolgaldor. And once once Sauron gets wind of that, it's you know kind of three years later he he leaves, and yeah, you get this this period known as the the Watchful Peace beginning. So probably about about four hundred years of we're still pretty confident that Sauron is not as dead as we all hoped. But we don't really know where he is or what he's up to, and yeah, it's kind of 2460, he moves back into Dol Guldor, and that's the, the end of the Watchful Peace. Uh, so it's 2850 uh, when Gandalf then secretly heads into Dol Guldur. Uh I believe this would be when he met Thorin's father and got the map. Was it his father? Uh, grandfather. Yep. Grandfather. Oh. oh, sorry, yeah, no, you're right, it was his father. Ignore me. Um, <laughs> gets given the map to the Lonely Mountain, and then 2941, so nearly a hundred years after that, uh, is actually when Bilbo and the dwarves are on their quest to the Lonely Mountain. Uh, Sauron is driven out of Dol Guldur uh, by the White Council, and Bilbo finds the One Ring. Yeah, so now we're kind of up to points that the the books are are actively dealing with, or the movies are dealing with. But Sauron gets driven out of Dol Guldur, and it's only like 10 years later, he sends three of his Nazgul to retake it. So it doesn't stay clean for very long, or, or empty for very long. Okay, so in 3018, Thranduil and Lorien are attacked by orcs in the north of Mirkwood. So this is the year that the War of the Ring is happening. And, you know, Aragorn is marching on the Black Gate, and Frodo has the ring, and we're, we're all deep in Lord of the Rings. Uh, but that same year, Celeborn leads an army across the Anduin, and he throws down the walls of Dol Guldur, and Thranduil clears the north of Mirkwood of orcs. So all these battles are taking place not just in Gondor and Mordor, but elsewhere. Uh, the orcs attack, the elves counterattack, and a year later, Celeborn forms East Lorien, and Thranduil renames the whole place Aaron Lasgallen, or the Wood of Green Leaves, in victory because the ring has been destroyed. And the elves are victorious in Mirkwood. There, I say for our for our kind of time period of of the game, we're we're essentially looking at Sauron himself is is gone from Mirkwood, but he's still got Nazgul controlling Dol Guldur, and that's kind of sort of emanating evil out from there, you know, and and, and corrupting Mirkwood. So the the Mirkwood that we encounter in in the game, it's while Sauron might might not be there in person, it, it's still very much. Under under the influence and, and the power of of some fairly fairly mighty and and pretty grim uh, creatures in the form of the Nazgul, so that that's kind of a, the the key bit in terms of our our setting for the game, I think. Yeah, it's it's long since been called Greenwood. It's long been corrupted, and it won't be until the end of the Lord of the Rings saga box, if you play that, that Mirkwood starts to recover. Yeah, three Nazguls in Dol Guldur, according to the timeline. Now, we'll end up at least facing off against one eventually, right? As soon as the core box. Yeah. 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 Although you might not if you don't pay attention to the cards and you play through the whole scenario without putting it into play. (laughs) Because the instruction is on the cup itself, not on the quest card. Right, because you set it to the side and never look at it again. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) The designers uh, learned a lot. You know, I think yeah. <laughs> just about formatting and that kind of thing. He just they're like, why does everyone say no? Even without that Nazgul coming in, that quest is still really difficult. So I'm not going to say what yeah. I was about to say. 
I probably played it wrong in 2012 when I played it though for the last time. So yeah, I'm going back to that one. I first started playing the game. I made James uh, make me, a, but so me, James, and his wife George all played it together because I just couldn't beat it. And I made James make us decks that basically meant we were definitely going to beat it. <laughs> and yeah, we did I, quite convincingly. I think it was like four rounds. Yeah, oh wow. But- I think I made you a grade wanderer deck and made sure that you weren't the one got that got captured. I think I, I think George had a fourth three hunters deck, so it's like we don't, no, we don't I care had, about the I had that three hunters. Work. You had grey wanderer. Okay, that way round. But yeah, just like we, we don't care that we can't put characters into play. We're just going to have decks that exploit ten years worth of card pool and don't care. Yeah, yeah, nothing wrong with that. Okay, we have a nice little quote here. I think that kind of sums up this time period in Mirkwood? And some spoke in whispers of the enemy and of the land of Mordor, that name the hobbits only knew in legends of the dark past, like a shadow in the background of their memories. But it was ominous and disquieting. It seemed that the evil power in Mirkwood had been driven out by the White Council only to reappear in greater strength in the old strongholds of Mordor. The Dark Tower had been rebuilt, it was said. From there the power was spreading far and wide, and away far east and south there were wars and growing fear. Orcs were multiplying again in the mountains. Trolls were abroad. No longer dull-witted, but cunning and armed with dreadful weapons. And there were murmured hints of creatures more terrible than all these, but they had no name. This is the time period specific to our game. It should be nice because the White Council did its thing, and it's not. And this is where I think the developers latch on to some great um, themes. And we get to play through it. We get to see those multiplying enemies and the smarter trolls and the murmured hints of evil creatures. So this takes us directly into talking about the game itself and the cards that make it up, right? Yeah, I think it does. Well, why don't you set us up, Steve? What, what's the way we're going to be handling scenarios and cards and lore specifically? Okay, we're going to do a few different types of segments now that we have our, our base knowledge of when and where we are. Um, we're going to start with a segment called Scout Ahead, where we're going to take a quick look at the scenario what we think is going on there, what's the story taking place, um, just kind of a high-level look. We're going to do a little Strider's Path. After that, we're going to talk about all the various important locations that we get to go to when we're doing those scenarios. We'll dig into, after that, little Radagast Cunning, and we'll investigate all the enemies that we're going to be encountering and having to do battle with. Uh, after that, we're going to be untroubled by the darkness and talk about those treacheries that are really key to the theme or the storytelling that's going on, maybe ones that really reference a point in the books. Uh, Then we'll double back, and we'll talk about how those come together to tell the story that we get to play in. That's the plan. We'll see how it goes. We're going to talk. We're going to – hopefully everyone feels it's sort of like a book club where we're going to investigate some things and discuss it, uh, what, what went right, what went wrong how well we like it, those sort of things. Uh, Shall we dive into those, guys? Yeah, sounds great. Sounds good to me. So we're going to start with the beginning. Passage through Mirkwood Core. The very, very first one. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your front door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. So the the first quest is uh, is passage through Mirkwood. 
and uh, the first quest card is flies and spiders it says simply you are you are traveling through murkwood forest carrying an urgent message from king thranduil to the lady galadriel of lorien as you move along the dark trail the spiders gather around you so you uh, you start this one off with uh, with a spider and a copy of the old forest road nice uh, nice simple setup yeah, you, you begin your, your progress through it. says, yeah, as you move through Mirkwood, hounded by spiders, the forest path forks before you. Trail winds into one of the darkest, most tangled parts of the forest. You sense that the foul, dark presence is hunting you, and you move quickly in an attempt to avoid its evil. Trail winds into one of the darkest, most powerful, most tangled parts of the forest. It's, it, yeah, it's this, this kind of repeating sense of you, you don't know where you are, the 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 space almost seems to, to kind of fold in on itself and you're, you're losing your way. Uh, obviously, you have this uh, fork in the path, I guess, uh, on, uh, on on stage two, where you can, uh, well, at the end of stage two, do you, which way do you go? It, it's not a choice. It's a, kind of a random thing that happens to you. Uh, you. You attempt to follow a secret hidden trail to avoid the enemy, or the shadows grow dark and you realize a foul presence is aiming to draw you from the path. You must defeat it pass this way so that's the, the kind of high level uh high level narrative do we do we want to get into kind of the the meat of it of exactly what that that looks like quest wise or do we do we want to look at some of the the cards more closely and go back to that i want to like i just want to say like right here too is like how playing you know opening the box reading the rule book you never really had played a game like this like i you know played reiner Knizia's lord of the rings cooperative game so but like a card game like this, um, and just reading that first quest card scene on the table, like, man, I was excited to do this. You know what I mean? Like the art, everything's just beautiful, right? And you're already hearing names, King Thranduil, Lady Galadriel, and I'm not sure I knew who they were or remembered who they were when I, you know, it's like, well, that's mysterious. And then also I thought it was really kind of bold of the designers to do the quest card that, like it's an either or thing. Like they they could have gone very like quest card methodical. You go to one, then you go to two, and like, but they kind of show already the flexibility of the game in this first quest. Um, and I think it's such a beautiful intro to this game. I really, really do. Um, yeah, it's a spot that anyone who knows Lord of the Rings or Middle Earth at all should be familiar with. Oh, we're in Mirkwood, and there are spiders. You know, like right. It, it's pretty iconic uh, right off the bat and you get this idea oh i have to get out of mirkwood and i'm being chased and there's there's gonna be spiders and there's gonna be bad guys and and uh even if you don't know who king thranduil is right because he's he's only referenced as the elven king in the hobbit the whole time or who's who's lady where where's lorian like it's yeah it's, yeah but those you know folks steeped in the lore already would you know they know lorian and they know these people and so i don't know I don't really have like. And there's no other quest card in the game that is sort of emotionally evocative to me for anything, but this card like takes me back, and so yeah, I'm very excited to talk about this. For me, one of those things for the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings that really drew me in as a kid was the maps and the different places on the maps. I don't know how you guys felt about that, but I was always flipping back and forth. Uh, I still love looking at the maps for the games, so we get to. We know we're going to be in with starting at Thranduil's place, and we have to get to Lorien. So I immediately dug my map out, right? And I'm looking at it. Oh, what's the path? How am I going to get there? 
And then we get all these great locations we have to travel to or we get to travel to. Um, so I thought maybe we could talk in our Strider's Path segment about the locations next. Awesome. Yeah, and the maps are great. I mean, you don't have a – there's no fantasy book out there ever that doesn't have a map, right? Yeah, not now. If you you got to have a map, I think. So. Got to have a map. <laughs> I mean, I – I I love to, I love Tolkien's hand drawn maps. I do think that Peter Jackson might be a bit deluded in thinking that that's what Faramir is using to plan troop movements around um, <laughs> around Gondor. Uh, but I mean, I'm I'm the same as you. Like with any book, I'm just there. Uh, you know, I, I read and someone's like, "We're in this place," and I'm like, "Better go back to the beginning." Where's that map gone? Right. Okay, so they've gone from there to there to there. Yeah, I love it. There's um. I've seen a couple floating about in various places online that map the you know, the journey that Bilbo and the dwarves took and then the map that Sam and Frodo took and all of the different routes that the characters took throughout the books. And yeah, I love those. They're fantastic. Yeah, there's a great website called uh, the Lotor Project, L-O-T-R project.com. And you can, like you said, you can choose different paths or storylines and it'll map, you know, draws where they went that, those are cool. That's a great uh, site for map enthusiasts. Strider's Path. My cuts short or long, don't go wrong. Strider, Fellowship of the Ring. All right, well, let's let's talk about some of these places. So uh, I got assigned where I stole the idea of getting to do the locations from you guys. So I want to talk about some of these these maps and where we're at and what we're doing right off the bat we're going to travel from the halls of thranduil westward right thranduil's caves are the far east in the northern section of middle earth and lorien is all the way to the other side of mirkwood at the very lower end of it like it is very far away um, but the first scenario is just going to try to get us out of mirkwood and we'll worry about getting uh, south later right Mm -hmm. uh, so if you're in the halls of thranduil and you need to travel west you are going to go along the elf path and that's going to take you west and you're going to hit the enchanted stream or maybe one of the great forest webs so we've got a lot of these different locations that they give us we're going to have to fight with spiders at a certain point in the glade of the spawn uh, that's a card we get that could derail you from your path you might end up south off the trail in the mountains of mirkwood Right until you find the safety of that old forest road, because between Thranduil and the old forest road is those those little stretch of mountains. Um, you might go west from there past the dwarf camp that got abandoned a long time ago. And if you manage to escape through those secret paths, that one choice we have to make, um, you could end up weaving your way back north again onto the elf path and escape out of the forest gate. Uh, which is a neat little location on the very western edge. There's one location they give us called the Necromancer's Pass that is not something that's marked anywhere on any of the maps um, and would suggest maybe you're traveling close to Dol Guldur, but that is dramatically south of where we're starting off. So that's one of the locations where the developers like, oh, this is real evocative of Mirkwood and Lord of the Rings. And they put it in there, and I don't really know where that's supposed to be, uh, at least not as far as like the journey we would be taking. Especially given the second quest. Yeah, it could, 
So, you know, the the second quest very much implies that, yeah, you do, you take the route you would assume you just go west until you hit the river and then you travel down the river. And it, it kind of reinforces that rather than any suggestion that you sort of weave your way diagonally through Mirkwood and you know, find yourself kicking around near, near Dolgaldor or anywhere there. Yeah, it doesn't seem like you, <laughs> you would. Um, all right, but we have got four real clear locations I want to talk about then. Um, I think... What I'm going to do is I'm going to read a little quote about the location, and then we'll talk about that that spot as it relates to the story and the, the books and everything. So the very first one you're going to hit is the Enchanted Stream or the Enchanted River. Uh, but your way through Mirkwood is dark, dangerous, and difficult, he said. Water is not easy to find there, nor food. There is one stream there, I know, black and strong, which crosses the path. That you should neither drink of nor bathe in, for I have heard that it carries enchantment and had a great drowsiness of and forgetfulness. So that's the Hobbit chapter seven, queer lodgings. So this enchanted stream flows north out of the mountains of Mirkwood, crosses the elf path, and that's about like dead center of the forest where it crosses the path. Then it turns northeast and it joins the Forest River. And the Forest River comes down out of the Grey Mountains and goes right through Thranduil's Hall, and the Forest River is like where Bilbo rides his barrels down to Lake Town from. Uh, the Enchanted Stream is the one where Daniel's favorite character falls in and falls asleep. Right, Daniel? Yep. Bomber. Um, so this Enchanted River, apparently once it hits the Forest River, its magic is diluted. Perhaps, you know, the power of the elves um, counters the enchantment coming out of it, because... All the dwarves go into that river. The elves are constantly in it. It's interesting that at a certain point, it gets that enchantment of falling asleep fades. I I never got a sense that it was the necromancer or Sauron that enchanted the river, but that it's like older than that. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, it, it could be. I mean, the necromancer, don't go through it. It seems like primordial in its magic. Yeah, yeah that could be. Because, I mean, the necromancer is way too far away, right? The mountains of Mirkwood are much closer the northern half, and that's where that stream is coming out of. Um, like, I, you know, I think it it's meant to conjure up, um, especially in, you know, in a, in a quest, people would be familiar with, you know, like the river, the river sticks and left and all that kind of stuff that does cause this forgetfulness. This is like an old trope, a river that if you drink from it, yeah, you are feeble-minded and stuff. Um, so I think it's just meant to kind of put us into that, like we're in, we're in the other realm now as heroes, right? Like we've crossed that threshold and we're in it. Cause it's like, this is it. Yeah. I just think of this as an ancient enchantment to this stream. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Um, well, and if you, if you go into that river, you're not going to be able to draw cards. So <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've forgotten how to do that. Yeah. I was just going to say like for that effect, I, I get how they can't be too mean to people in this very, very first quest, but it feels like, not being able to draw cards doesn't give that feeble-mindedness. It'd be more like, I'd like to see something like cannot play events or something like that. I, mean, I guess it's still, you know, it, it's still kind of conveying a, a sort of lethargy. And you know, as, as, as Daniel yeah. says, it, 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 it's not that kind of maliciousness of a, of a direct attack from Sauron. It is just, yeah, this, this kind of ancient force just kind of slowing you down to the pace of the forest and it, 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 it's almost sort of entish in the you know, just the tempo of uh, at which things are happening so you know i'm sure if they did it now it'd be like you can't draw cards or gain resources 
by any means kind of thing or something but but yeah just it, it it's not really attacking it's just kind of stopping everything and just kind of putting the brakes on so i i think it yeah personally i i think that one does feel quite nicely thematic it's it, it's not malicious but it's it's definitely impactful yeah especially like you said early on <laughs> opening scenario yeah that, that that is the thing so early on yeah may, maybe anything else would be just too mean but that's that's a good way of thinking of it james it's making me look at it with a little bit more of a acceptance there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because really it could be like, uh, flip over one of your heroes, they never get to do anything because they're sleeping, and the rest of your guys got to carry him around. And... <laughs> like, I'm not yeah, playing this uh, game. <laughs> I mean, that, that might be just a little bit too mean. Too, yeah, a little. <laughs> like, even now, that might be a little bit too mean. I don't know. The designers have sort of perfected meanness. So maybe <laughs> go back to this. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's another location you want to talk about, Steve? Okay, so we've come. We've started down the Elf Path. We've managed to cross the Enchanted River, and now we're going to run into a great forest web or a glade full of the spawn. There's going to be spiders everywhere. Why don't one of you guys read that little quote for us? The nastiest things they saw were the cobwebs. Dark, dense cobwebs with threads extraordinarily thick often stretched from tree to tree or tangled in the lower branches on either side of them. There were none stretched across the elf path, but whether because some magic kept it clear or for what other reason, they could not guess. A Hobbit, Chapter 8, Flies and Spiders. Well, that's a name we've heard before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is like a location that could pretty much be anywhere in the forest, um, but we know from the books that the area around the Enchanted Stream is filled with spider webs and the great spiders. Right, the dwarves run afoul of them during their quest, and it's only like Bilbo's luck and uh, that they're saved. So we'll talk about spiders in a minute, but their webs, it says in the book, like spread from glen to glen, from the Ethel Dueth to the eastern hills to Dol Guldur and the fastness of Mirkwood, which suggests that the, like that whole southern half of Mirkwood could just be full of spiders and spider webs. And I think even the most casual token fan Hobbit reader, like once you see this card and are in this location, like you you are fully understanding where you are. You know what I mean? Like I think the spiders, they're kind of iconic. Yeah, definitely. So a forest of webs is delightful. Yeah, and the card, you know, like you have to exhaust a hero to cut your way through the webs, which makes sense. And um, that nightmare card, the Glade of the Spawn, um, you know, the spiders just keep appearing there or whatnot. It, it, I think those make sense. They seem to feel right um, for just general generic spider web locations. But so let's say we're going along the elf path. We've crossed the Enchanted River and we've run afoul of the spiders and we can't go west anymore. We end up turning south. We end up near the mountains of Mirkwood. Simon, would you read us the quote for the mountains of Mirkwood? The Emmendur were a group of high hills in the northeast of the forest, so-called because dense fir woods grew up on their slopes. But they were not yet of evil name. In later days, when the shadow of Sauron spread through Greenwood the Great and changed its name from Erin Galen to Tar Nufuin, the Emindur became a haunt of many of his most evil creatures and were called Emin Nufin, the Mountains of Mirkwood. I apologize for any pronunciations that I just butchered there. Close enough. Close enough for me. 
So these mountains on our little map are between Thranduil and the Forest River and the Old Forest Road, right? The Dwarf Road. So there's this little stretch of mountains there. And that's where our Enchanted River flows from. And there's actually a second little river that comes out east, which goes down and hits the river running. Um, and, but we don't know if that second river has any enchantments on it or not. We, we never hear about that. But it is drawn on the map. So this range of mountains could also be infested with spiders. But we know that um, if you dig, they're actually referenced that there's a werewolf in the mountains of Mirkwood. Uh, there's orcs there. There's other hideous things that have no name. So it has been corrupted, and and Sauron's dark forces do live in there. And we learn that in the Second Age, Orifer, the king of the Sylvan Elves of Greenwood the Great, moved his people into the region, uh, and they could have lived near to this mountain. But what we get is in the two-player limited edition set, uh, the Caves of Nibbendum takes place inside these mountains of Mirkwood. They, you know, the developers have decided that there's a dwarf home there, um, or there was. So these mountains have like changed hands a bunch of times and, and give a real uh, interesting idea of life within the forest up on these hills. So Aurifer, if I'm remembering rightly, is Thranduil's dad. And I think he dies in one of the battles of the Last Alliance towards the end of the Second Age. So... Again, kind of by the period where we're looking at, this is almost three thousand years after, you know, Orifer could could possibly have been been leading people here. So I guess it kind of makes sense that dwarves might have come in and, and you know found a bit to take up residence in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of time that passes from different folks in this region. Okay, so we've been distracted. We've we've gone into the mountains of Mirkwood, um, and we've passed by them. And instead of trying to find the elf path north again, we go south and hit the old forest road. Daniel, the old forest road? Had they followed the pass, their path would have led them down the stream from the mountains that joined the Great River miles south of the Carrick. At that point, there was a deep ford. But beyond that, a track led to the skirts of the wood and to the entrance of the old forest road. But Bayorn had warned them that that way was now often used by the goblins. While the forest road itself, he had heard, was overgrown and disused at the eastern end and led to impassable marshes where the paths had long been lost. Yeah, so this is one of those things that Tolkien does where he draws on the map the old forest road. He gives us those two lines and then he never references it again <laughs> <laughs> and just makes you want to know what's there. Um, so this old forest road or the men in Algrim, the road of the dwarves, right? We have a thick line that runs right almost the center of Mirkwood from east to west. Um, the western end, if you were to take it west out of Mirkwood, right, you go past uh, the Anduin River, across the Old Ford, and up towards the High Pass. But if you take it east, it ends up in these uh, the long marshes and the river and the forest has sort of reclaimed that area. Um, but we know the road's been abandoned by the dwarves. There's no dwarves in the area anymore, right? And it's you know, used by orcs and stuff now. Um, we also learned that it, at some point in the books, we learned there's like still spies in the woods. So I'm guessing those orcs and other evil men are using the road to make their passage through Mirkwood easier so that they don't have to fight the spiders as well. The neat thing in the game is, right, traveling on a road is easier than winding through the forest. So if you're using the old forest road, 
uh, it's a benefit. It's a benefit to us in the game. So um, what does it do? I forget. Uh, uh, so it lets us choose and ready a character. Character. Yeah. Uh, so the first player may. Yeah, you make good time along the road if you know you don't get waylaid. Yeah. But and if I remember rightly, this is the one that starts in play. It does. So the first time you ever clear a location, you'll get to ready a character, which is really handy when you've got that one spider engaged with you too. Yeah, that sets up like a false sense of security for locations. You're like, oh, all yep. these locations would be great, and then you realize, oh, they're all terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is a one-off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a handful of locations in the game that are good, and then most of them are not. I guess it's, you know, depending on what you draw on the first round, it it, it is giving you a little bit, um, a little bit of a decision to make in terms of you know, the the road is is not very threatening at all. It's you know, it's one threat, it's three progress. If there's anywhere else out, maths might say you'd be better off going there. But the yeah, this this kind of nice ability tempts you into going down the road, but Maybe it takes you a bit longer to make that three progress and you're leaving nastier things in the staging area. Or maybe they were just being kind because it was the start of the game. So I think it's potentially like an in, an intentional thing by the designers to kind of go, right, we, we want the first turn. We want them to be able to do everything in that first turn. So we want them to be able to quest with everyone or quest with two heroes and clear the location and then defend against that spider, and then also be able to attack that spider. And I think if you didn't have this location there, you definitely wouldn't be able to do all of those things. Right. Or you're playing solo with the tactics deck. Yeah, you still then, can't then do I mean, you, you you're still not going to win if you're doing that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think right away it shows you kind of all the things the game can do from the get-go. Yeah, I agree with that. Speaking of that tactics deck, I remember when the box turned up for this and I sent a picture to the Card Game Cooperative guys on our group chat and everyone literally just came back and said, don't use the tactics deck. <laughs> don't do that to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> New player tip, never play that deck. <laughs> solo, don't play it solo. Okay, so let's say instead of crossing the mountains of Mirkwood or going south after we've encountered the elves and you know maybe maybe if we were along the road we might find the abandoned camp those sort of things but instead we continue along the elf path and we actually reach the forest gate which is on the far western side I'll read this one uh, the entrance to the path was like a sort of arch leading to a gloomy tunnel made by two great trees that lent together too old and strangled with ivy and hung with lichen to bear more than a few blackened leaves. The path itself was narrow and wound in and out among the trunks. Soon the light at the gate was like a little bright hole far behind, and the quiet was so deep that their feet seemed to thump along while all the trees leaned over them and listened. Hobbit, Chapter 8, Flies and Spiders. So this is the entrance slash exit to the elf path on the western edge. Um, and so we know the elf path... It's one of the few paths through Mirkwood at the time that's like relatively safe. And we talked about the road, which is to the south. That's the other one who, that's relatively safe, I guess. Um, but the elf path cuts east to west from the forest gate all the way to Thranduil's Halls. And it's like halfway between the Grey Mountains and uh, the mountains of Mirkwood. So it's like that northern quarter of it. It's here that Bilbo and company 
having traveled from Bayorn's house, let go of the ponies. They like return his ponies to him. They refill their water skins from a little spring, and then they enter Mirkwood. So they're coming in to the Mirkwood here. We're coming out of Mirkwood here. So in our quest, the forest gate should be near the end of our quest, right? We should be finding it towards the end, not at the beginning. And that's only if we stay on that track straight straight across. Um, of course, encounters are going to derail us and whatnot. But uh, it would... That's this is kind of the location where if we chose the secret paths option where we have to escape, I think that's this fits thematically with that one. And once we reach the fort gate, we've escaped Mirkwood. You know, uh, characters could refill their skins. You could start to hunt for game again. You've left the oppression of Mirkwood, and you're starting to draw really close to the Anduin. So you get that whole like draw two cards effect. Like ah, we're back out where we can have stuff again. This is, again, it, it comes back to that having to kind of suspend your expectations a little bit because obviously it can come out in the middle of the game and you can go, oh, we've come out of the forest gate, fantastic. Oh, hang on, how did we end up down in the south of Mirkwood in the Necromancer's Pass? But where did we go wrong? <laughs> right. Oh, we're back at the mountains of Mirkwood again or something like that, yeah. Like, how did we get so turned around that we went back into the wood? <laughs> It's a really poor sense of direction. And again, you know, as we've said a lot of times, it is, it is the introductory quest. I think you know, probably if if you had something like this later on, there there would be a uh, you know, the, this would be tied to the quest card or something like that. So you know, whereas one of the of the three bees pulls out a spider, you'd have the other one pulling out a location and something more more specifically keyed into that or something like it. But I, I think it does a does a reasonable job of, of yeah giving you that <sighs> as, as you make it out even if it can pop up in some narratively odd places because of the the way the deck shuffles yeah i i just like that we get to go to these places right we get to see them the artwork is good for um uh, these are spots you should recognize if you've you know seen the movies or watched the read the books that kind of stuff so th- there's this one last location i want to kind of talk about there lies the fastness of southern mirkwood said halder it's clad in the forest of dark fir where the trees strive one against another and their branches rot and wither in the midst upon a stony height stands dolgaldur where long the hidden enemy has had his dwelling we fear that now it is inhabited again and with power sevenfold a black cloud lies over it of late right so the necromancer's pass this is that one I mentioned before that feels kind of out of place, but maybe not. Okay. It's not anywhere in the books. I could not find a reference to this anywhere. Um, and I don't recall right hearing about it in, in all my readings, but it, to me, it could give the impression that it's somewhere in the mountain pass of the mountains of Mirkwood, right? It could be somewhere up there. Um, but the art on the card suggests that we were looking at Dol Guldur from atop the hill Amon Lank the naked hill that's down that way too. So there's a little disconnect there. Are we looking at Dolgodur? Are we up in the mountains of Mirkwood? Um, so that's that's where I get thrown off a little bit with this card. You know, a, referen- a, a, a pass usually um, references a mountain trail, right? So I'm, I figure it's got it. We got to be talking about mountains of Mirkwood. I mean, I would kind of go there because I mean, you've you've got those those fir trees in the imagery that it mentions in the quote 
I, I feel like we, we okay. are the, the the image. I think you're right. We are looking at Dolgodur. We're not looking at mountains of Mirkwood. Yeah. But I wonder if the area that it references is not necessarily right. Well, tied the, to the imagery. Yeah, because well, the traits on the card are stronghold and Dolgodur. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, they clearly wants to think it's down there. But I don't. I don't know. So well, I'm I'm guessing that this location is here mainly uh, something evocative of mood, right? Like that you are that this place, the entire forest, is is menaced by his presence, right? And so wherever you go, you are not safe from from the necromancer. Does that make sense? Like it's yeah. I don't think yeah, it's I, like yeah. It probably you're right. It's like unfortunate about the traits and the arts with the art, which makes it suggest you're like literally looking at the place, even though in the quest itself you're nowhere near it. Right. It's like 250 uh, miles. Yeah, from it's the like mountains to the. Yeah, that's a real wrong turn if you're right. up there. Yeah. Um, but I think yeah, it's just it's for mood. It's setting up the the villain early. And you do get you know kind of back to the, some of the first stage stuff particularly around gondola you know you've got these kind of hidden ways and you know narrow passages so yeah, but maybe the the designers are, are trying to suggest some some kind of hidden passage through the through the mountains that's so narrow that it basically becomes a wormhole and forces you to discard two cards as you uh, as you squeeze yourself through it and then you end up at Dolcoster. yeah <laughs> wish i hadn't bothered I mean, I guess another thing that we could take into account here is that it's not from the Flies and Spiders set. It is from an additional encounter set. So is it just that it's included in there because it needs to be in that encounter set? Mm. All right. Yep. So is is it like a case of they designed the encounter sets and then said this one's going to be in there and then maybe someone even said, oh, that Necromancer's Pass, that might not quite fit, but it was too late. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. It's from the little encounter set with the little goblin face on it, whatever that one is. I think it's just Dolgoldor Orcs, isn't it? All right, so those are the places we travel to along our quest. And and I think, I just think they did a great job. Necromancer's Path, outstanding, just feels right to me. Like playing that quest, it's like, oh, here I, oh, yeah, I'm on the forest road. Oh, I'm at the forest gate. Oh, mountains of Mirkwood. It's just. Yeah, it's nice. And like you said, anyone can just like Google a map of the Mirkwood area. And like you say, those are there. People can relate to where they're going. They can go, right, I'm here. And then I'm here. And oh, I've got turned around and I'm over there. Yeah, it's great for the first quest. And you've got that recognition that you can put into it. Yeah, and we'll eventually come back here uh, many, many years later to get to travel these locations again in the, what is it, the Ro- Wilds of Rovanian? Yeah. But we don't just get to travel to places we get to, or we have to, do battle with some... Some nasties. Evil forces. Yeah. All right. So that's that's Simon, right? Radagast is, of course, a worthy wizard, a master of shapes and changes of hue. And he has much lore of herbs and beasts, and birds are especially his friends. Okay, so uh, so this is the Radagast cunning section. Um, we're going to take a look at the, the various creatures that we may encounter in and around Mirkwood in this scenario and uh, the other areas of Arda in other scenarios. Uh, these include the uh, the Kelvar, the beasts and animals. 
not the various races that might live within the bounds of the forest and surrounding areas. Uh, but so, guys, when when you think of Mirkwood, what do you think of? Black squirrels. And uh, is that the answer you wanted? Probably not. China Yeah. Spiders. Spiders. Yes, spiders. That's the right. James answer. has to come in and give us the serious answer there, doesn't he? <laughs> he also did. spiders. Thank you, James. <laughs> <laughs> and boy, do we get spiders. Perhaps the most well known are the giant spiders, the lazy lobs and adder cops, which figure so heavily in the tale of Bilbo and the dwarves. We see three versions of spiders in this quest and a search of a hall of bay or it turns up 43 results for spiders. Is that true? Wow. Okay. That includes spiders found in Moria, all the various Mirkwood center quests, like the competitive ones, those in the Hobbit saga, the wilds of Ravanian, those in Harad and heirs of Numenor, and even under the ash mountains in the last cycle. And also nightmare packs. Oof. Clearly giant spiders and Lord of the Rings go hand in hand. For the most part, these creatures are evil spawns that have various degrees of society and a beast culture. There are two major spider personalities in Tolkien's writing. The first and greatest is Ungoliant, and the second is Shelob. Um, so, so one thing that I discovered that I didn't know before whilst I was uh, doing the, the research for this bit uh, was uh, that the reason why spiders feature so heavily in Tolkien's writing is actually because his son was scared of them. <laughs> and it's also why they're always portrayed as being sort of evil and villainous. Um, I can't personally imagine my child saying, this thing scares me, and then intentionally putting it in everything I write, <laughs> specifically to read to them as well. Um, but I suppose the, the 1930s were a different time. Yeah, I guess. To toughen them up young. <laughs> Yeah, these spiders are definitely malicious with ill intent. Yes, All definitely. The <laughs> um, so, as you mentioned there, uh, we've got some some fairly famous spiders. Uh, so we'll take a quick look at them before we go into the Mirkwood spiders. Uh, and the first one, we're going to go all the way back to the first age to learn a little bit about. Uh, so, as you mentioned, is Ungoliant. So Ungoliant was born out of darkness and was the first giant spider of Arda. Uh, she literally devoured light and spawned webs of darkness. Uh, so she is typical, or, or I feel that she's typical of evil in Tolkien's writing. Uh, so she's, you know, she's full of greed. She does things to excess. Um, it, it's very much about, I want all that I can have and then I want more. And I'll do it even to my own detriment. Uh, so, during the First Age, Melkor uses this greed to his advantage and convinces Ungoliant to drink the sap from the two trees of Valinor after he's damaged them. Uh, and he does this by offering to end her hunger with whatever else she desires. Uh, so, she kind of she takes some convincing because she's, you know, rightly scared of the power of the elves. But she goes along with, with the plan, eventually. Uh, and like some kind of very hungry caterpillar, I don't know if you guys. <laughs> I, I'm, assu I'm assuming yeah. that you guys have the very hungry caterpillar over in the states and Canada. Oh, absolutely, uh, we do. Yeah, uh, but you know, she goes through the sap of the two trees of Valinor. She drinks all the water from the wells of Varda, and she's fed multiple jewels and gems by Melkor. She was still hungry, and she was still hungry. 
And at that point, she <laughs> demands that Melkor gives her the Silmarils that he has stolen so she can consume them too. Uh, and of course, Melkor, Morgoth, uh, he goes back on this deal because why is he going to give her the Silmarils to eat? That would be ridiculous. Um, of course, Ungoliant's pretty unhappy. Ungoliant, oh, I'm going to do that every time, is pretty ticked off with this uh, and attacks him. Uh, Morgoth is then, I guess, fortunately for him, saved uh, as his cries of pain awaken hibernating, hibernating Balrogs uh, that are living under Angma, and they come to his aid and remove her webs. Uh, after this, Ungoliant flees to, and, and this is going to be wrong as well, but uh, Nan Dungortheb, uh, where she then continues to breed with other great spiders to create her spawn. And it's said that uh, eventually she perishes to herself. She is so greedy that she consumes herself. That's kind of like in that episode of The Simpsons when Homer's head turns into a donut. You remember that one? <laughs> yeah. And he can't and he can't stop eating his own head. <laughs> kind of reminds me of that. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just yeah, hungry caterpillar jokes aside. That's you know that whole kind of destruction of the of the trees. You know that's that's like a massive catalyst for the you know everything that goes on in the first age with kind of the, the division of the elves and, and everything else. So, she, you know, she, she she's playing a massive role there in just kind of everything that happens. Yeah, happens for basically the whole plot of the Silmarillion. Yeah, I mean, I, I was definitely trying to, to shorten that down a bit there for the fact that we're, we're looking at flies and spiders, but we need to know a little bit about Ungoliant. But yeah, there's definitely a lot more that happens. And Yeah, her character is so interesting that, um, like... She could have defeated Morgoth, right? I mean, oh, she was gonna. It was going yeah, to happen. Yeah, it was going to happen. <clears throat> that it's yeah. a powerful character, and Morgoth won't give up the Silmarils. Like that's the power they have over him and his own lust for them. And I love the the idea that she consumes herself in hunger and just like when when I read that sort of stuff the first time, I'm like this is just so good. I just really. Uh, enjoyed that the the whole piece with her, and then knowing that she's spawning with other spiders, you know, and, and we're we're gonna get there. What? Who are we talking about? Her descendants eventually. Uh, yeah, just uh, always an enjoyable piece to read, and uh, like, no, don't do it. You know, the trees die and all that sort of stuff. But so, where did she even come from? Because she's not oh, created by Morgoth, right? She just sort of. Shows up, right? And I'm right. assuming where that's where the other great spiders come from that she breeds with, right? Like, so I I think what we get in the Silmarillion is she comes from out of the void, so she's not right. a creation of Iluvatar. She's sort of a, a primal thing, she, right? Like, right. She just is. Yeah, she just is. But I think the great spiders that she eventually breeds with are creatures, you know, that like. Um, the the Maiar had made right. I think like you have boars and beasts and birds and insects and spiders and all these creatures who are just sort of okay. created by Yavanna or whoever, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they just exist as spiders and they have their place in the ecology of the world. And then I see. 
she breeds with them and those ones she breeds with become these evil ver versions i don't think the spiders naturally are evil creatures to start with like in their conception right she turns them evil yeah yeah, I guess it's easy for us to look at the, uh, the the regular giant spiders as being evil because they kind of, you know, they they put barriers in the way of the the people that we know as heroes. But at the end of the day, a spider is going to catch something and eat it. And if a spider's that big, that a hobbit is a, a regular sized meal, they're going to do it to a hobbit. Yeah, that's a good point. Are they e even the ones at Mirkwood aren't necessarily evil? They just are really huge but, spiders. But so. they are corrupted. Yeah. Like in the yeah. way that the forest is itself, that right. I mean, they, I can't remember exactly, but I'm fairly certain that in the Hobbit, they're still not particularly nice people. The spiders, yes, the spiders. Right. No, they mess with uh, Bilbo, right? Yeah. Like they have, con and then they speak to him. I mean, he he did call them a crazy cob and a lazy lob, which is you know that's that's enough to get anyone riled up. <laughs> he might have started it. Yeah, they're just minding their own business till he showed up. Now, I imagine that the spiders in Mirkwood, we know that they do battle with the elves, right? So that immediately puts them that, in that opposition. Um, I wonder if they are, uh, they don't care who they capture. Are they eating orcs and goblins? Uh, are they capturing wargs if they wander into their webs? My guess is yes, right? They're just consuming whatever they can consume, just like Ungoliant would. So, I mean, yeah, certainly if we look forward at the uh, the next famous spider that i'm sure simon's about to tell us about we you know we definitely get tales there of um yeah orcs and orcs and goblins being being ensnared in much the uh, much the same way including i believe chieftain of fact i think that's where where his name comes from as uh, as a, a one-time victim of a giant spider yeah i think you're right uh so well as you've alluded to there james the next thing we're going to look at is uh Probably the, the well, definitely the most well known and assumedly the most successful of Ungoliant's spawn, uh, which is Shelob. Uh, so, not much is known of Shelob before kind of, uh, well, of her early years at least, uh, but it is known that she actually uh, created her lair in the Mountains of Shadow before Sauron had claimed Mordor as his, and I use air quotes here. Evil layer. <laughs> um, so she she wasn't really there as a partner to to Sauron, uh, and more of a, a symbiotic parasite. So uh, as you've alluded to, she she didn't she wasn't there to stop people getting in. She was there to she was kind of there. She lived there, and Sauron let her stay there as effectively pest control she prevented people going in uh she also ate any orc that kind of stumbled into her path and every now and then he would just feed someone to her if he didn't like them very much just to keep people in check now there's a story you tell your son if, if oh, you don't yeah. behave i'll feed you to the giant spider that lives in the <laughs> hallway <laughs> wow yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. That's terrifying. I'm kind of glad that Tolkien wasn't my father. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the, the point where we kind of learn of Sheila Borelli, uh is during Lord of the Rings, 
when Sam and Frodo are coming up to Sirith Ungol. Uh, the first part which she actually played in the story uh, is during Gollum's journey as he's leaving Mordor, as he's been questioned, and he encounters Shelob. And again, it's kind of, uh, in a, a strange roundabout way, you could say it kind of mirrors the the agreement between Morgoth and Ungoliant, where mm, yeah. Gollum makes this agreement with her that she shouldn't eat him, and he'll bring her something much tastier. And once again, as we all know, this kind of this desire for excess, this desire for something tastier, although nowhere near on the same scale, leads to her demise also. Uh, as Gollum leads Sam and Frodo to her lair, where she attacks them, and she successfully poisons Frodo, but is ultimately defeated by Sam, thanks to Sting and the Vial of Galadriel. And then the last that we actually read of her is as Sam puts on the One Ring, and with his heightened senses, he can hear her kind of blubbing away in the background, presumably gone to lick her wounds. Uh, whether or not she lives or dies is not actually mentioned. So... I just sort of put some of it together here. Like, Ungoliant desires the light out of the Silmarils and does battle with Morgoth for them and is ultimately defeated and withdraws and then consumes herself. Shelob does battle with Samwise, who has the light of a Silmaril captured in the file of Galadriel, and he uses that to ultimately defeat Shelob, who withdraws into the darkness, and we don't know if she lives or dies. So, like, they're, like, grandmother like granddaughter or whatever like right they're both defeated by the same greed for the same with the same light so it's it's a nice parallel i think it it says doesn't it that it's kind of yeah she's you know normally the strength of the hobbit wouldn't have been able to pierce her her skin even with an elven blade like sting but kind of in her greed she kind of throws herself on him and it's it's her own weight that allows the sword to, to kind of push through into her so again, yeah, it's it's very much a, a self-inflicted uh, wound caused by by that excess of greed and haste. So should we take a look at the uh, some of the actual spider cards that we've got here quickly? Yeah. Well, so idea. the Ungoliant so, spawn in the game is clearly not Shayla, right? Right. No. Right. It's just some larger, larger one. Uh, yeah. So I mean, it, it would be a spawn of Ungoliant, but not a named one. Um. Again, so the research that I did did suggest that the the only surviving one at this kind of time was Shelob. So I think there's kind of a an amount of agency that's been given here to having a spider that's worthy of being like a big boss style fight at the end of this quest. Right. And maybe also calling out to something that people who have read a bit more into the books might be like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah, because the card is not a unique card, right? It's not a named no. spider. No. It's just saying no. this is a spider born of the line of Ungoliant, right? As as you know, kind of they all are at this point if they're the intelligent speaking ones. Yeah, I guess it's kind of Ungoliant's grand spawn or great 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 grand spawn. Mm-hmm. And when you're Which you're playing this game for the very first time and you see this card, it's like how are you supposed to beat that? <laughs> <laughs> five attack nine health. five oh, attack God. nine health you're like that's not possible right oh, this is this is the part that teaches you about chump blocking isn't it it is yeah. <laughs> and then somebody looked at that card and thought yeah and no, i think we need a nightmare version yeah right 
Well, all the versions would be the nightmare versions for Tolkien's son. So, um, yeah, we got all kinds of different spiders, right? In this king spider, yeah. four spider, they're all a little different, but they're all kind of the same. Yeah. So, uh, so like you said, like there's the king spider, who's obviously a little bit stronger, but maybe a bit weaker skinned. Forest spider, who's slightly thicker spin skinned, but maybe can't hit for quite so much. Um, yeah, they work interesting theme, right? One of them's like yeah. throwing webs on you. Um, another one's dropping down from above, so it gets that like ambush bonus when it attacks you. Yeah, I, I mean, we'd be very disappointed if in this scenario, flies and spiders, we didn't fight some spiders. I just say we, we don't fight any flies. We're the flies. Uh, that would make more sense. We're the flies getting caught in the webs of the spiders. Well, a hummer horn is fly-ish. It can fly. But we'll talk about that later, right? So, yeah. But it's it's also you know worth bearing in mind that this scenario is meant to teach you the game as well. And so the, I like that the spiders have, they share a certain quality across with the when revealed effect and like the one that engages you does something. So I like that they're not just sort of static in that way. So they, they're again showing you like the possibilities of the game. They're great. Yeah, right, right out of the gate. Yeah. And I don't remember if that sort of like the when revealed nature of spiders carries over in the other 48 <laughs> versions of them on Hall of Bayorn, but um, it'd be neat if that's sort of a, a consistent part of their format. Like when they show up, they do stuff. I'm assuming they do just because, you know, it's this game. When everything shows up, it does stuff and it's never good. <laughs> it's never good. I know the ones in the, um, in the Hobbit saga box you've you've got that kind of specific poison mechanic is it, i think venom i think is the key word but that's more about when it damages you i think but mm-hmm. i'm trying to remember yeah as you said there are there are so many spiders it's uh tricky to recall them all well simon what else exists in these woods uh so in these woods there are uh so th- there's one kind of predictable thing and one thing that you may not have heard of before which would you like first? How about the predictable one? The predictable one. Uh, so we have got some black forest bats. Uh, so the, the the association between Sauron and bats does once again stretch back to the first age. Um, but compared to his shape-shifting messenger, Thuringwathil, these bats are a little <laughs> less troublesome. Um, in The Hobbit, bats are mentioned multiple times. Uh, so you have, uh, as Bilbo's lost in the depths of Moria, you can hear them flitting about. Um, there's the one that brushes past him inside the Lonely Mountain. Uh, and of course, we do get that dark cloud of bats that come across the sky in the Battle of Five Armies. But important to where we are now in Mirkwood, uh, they're most notable for being one of the reasons that the party don't have fires in the evening, uh, as they are drawing the moths to the flame, and with the moths come these large, swooping black bats. I've got a little uh, little quote about that for us. So, worse still, it brought thousands of dark grey and black moths, some nearly as big as your hand, flapping and whirring round their ears. They could not stand that, nor the huge bats, black as a top hat either. So they gave up fires and sat at night and dozed in the enormous, uncanny darkness. It pleases me to know that they have top hats in the Shire. Yeah, yeah, top hats. <laughs> <laughs> Which would suggest that they have hatters 
which would suggest that some of them are mad. That's true. <laughs> I feel like if there was ever someone that would be able to make me a fantastic hat, it would be a hobbit. Yeah, probably a big bad on it. So one thing I find really strange about this card in particular is that there's only one of them, and I feel like traveling through Mirkwood, you'd probably encounter more bats. Yeah, they don't they don't feel swarmy, do they? In, in no, the no, not at all. Crows do. So we should rename the card Black Forest Bat. <laughs> I mean, I think the card <laughs> itself is obviously a swarm, but it implies that there is just this one single swarm of bats going around Mirkwood, and they just appear in random places, torment someone for a little while, and then move on their merry way. Yeah, every so often they reappear. I guess yeah. it's like it's symbolic of when you guys think you're safe and finally set a fire. Like, yeah, no. yeah, that 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 kind of <laughs> makes sense, I guess. <laughs> That's funny. I I guess I thought there were more of them because I feel like yeah, I feel like you draw them more often. I don't know. They, they they characterize this quest a lot for me. Like they're one of the things I think about in this quest. Yeah, I mean they're, they're you know they're low threat as well, so you're going to engage them pretty pretty quickly. And their effect is fun. Yeah. If they come out, I mean, they're, they're a pain in the butt. As you say, there's the, the one revealed, you've got to choose a character currently committed to a quest and remove that character. That's a pain in the butt. Yeah. It could be, you know, it could mean that, well, it could mean that next turn, you're going to be engaging the thing we're going to be talking about next. But <laughs> we'll talk about that next. Oof. Are there, um, sorry, edit that out. I've completely forgot what I was going to say. It's one of those moments of genius followed one of the, by one of those moments of complete idiocy. Well, we could just move right into the Hummer Horns then. Yeah, yeah. Right. So you had said something, what, what we'll talk about next, right? Uh, yes. So we can, go, we can go from there? Yeah. Cool. I read the poem. And what's Sorry, that, what's that James? So can I read the poem? You can read the poem. Do you want to tear it up for me? So we've... Uh... We've got a short poem that describes, uh, or at least mentions, the uh, the next creature for you. I'd like to go ahead. Yeah, so this is uh, a poem from the adventures of Tom Bombadil. He battled with the Dumbledores, the Hummerhorns and Honeybees, and won the Golden Honeycomb, and running home on sunny seas, and ships of leaves and gossamer, with blossom for a canopy, sat and sang and furbished up and burnished up his panoply. Uh, so again, this is another card where there's only one of them in the, the whole encounter deck, and this is the Hummerhorns. Thank God there's only one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One is plenty. Uh, so I quickly want to mention that the poem itself, because uh, it's the, the only place in Tolkien's works that I, or I believe you guys as well, could find that actually mentions Hummerhorns. Yeah, yeah, it's the only spot. Uh, so as uh, as James mentioned, it's from the Adventures of Tom Bombadil. The poem itself is called Errantry, uh, and is uh, a tale of a knight on a journey. Uh, the poem is attributed to Bilbo, uh, and that's due to its similarities to the song of I'm going to get this wrong, Arendelle. Uh And so I'm kind of taking from this that it's safe to assume that Bilbo would have come across Hummerhorns whilst he was journeying, and maybe they just weren't quite as scary as everything else to warrant a mention in the story. Right. I mean, we, unlike the spiders, we, they don't talk to him. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's just, 
maybe they're a bit of a pest, which again, that kind of contradicts what the card says. Yeah, we got um, a couple different insects, right? The Hummerhorns are some sort of insect. Uh, yes. Because this whole poem on so Aaron Tree is like the knight is some little fairy knight, right? He's battling with honeybees and apparently Dumbledore from Harry Potter that didn't exist yet. And and these Hummer <laughs> horns. But we also get like uh, in Lord of the Rings, when they are in the Midgewater Marshes, they get the midges, or as Sam calls them, the Neeker Breakers. So we see these insects get mentioned, which is one of those great pieces of Tolkien's world building. Um, where he names various insects, mm-hmm. like you know, you don't get that in in every um, story. Um, but yeah, I think these Hummerhorns maybe are way worse than whatever Bilbo might have run across. Yeah, I mean, so there is a description of Hummerhorns that I found from the Middle Earth role playing game, uh, and it suggests that they're gigantic, they're black and grey, similar to wasps, and weigh between six and eight pounds, which is sorry. Roughly- Roughly about three kilograms. A three kilo insect is not similar to a wasp, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> no, yeah, I would. I mean, I guess visually, if you imagine a wasp, but three kilograms. Yeah, it's like the size of a cat, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, on the card, it looks to be. I mean, it's bigger than the guy on the card's head, assuming and... that it's not like some really strange mm. perspective where the guy is really far away and the hummerhorn is really close. Yeah, and there's a whole swarm of them, right? It's Hummer horns, and you can see a bunch of them on the art. There's like four yeah, or five in the yeah. background. He's in trouble, this guy. I mean, he's he's probably taking five damage. Probably, yeah, so probably one per out. one per insect flying in the picture. Uh, I this is such a crazy thing in this <laughs> in this quest. Like, I remember seeing this for the first time. I'm like, I've never heard of a Hummer horn, and they one shot a hero. So yeah. wow. I had been I'm, about to use Gandalf on Ungoliant Spawn, but now I'm going to have to use Gandalf to take out the Hummerhorns in the staging area. So I'm going to play devil's advocate a bit here, and I think that this is intentionally this bad with that high of an engagement cost, once again, for the learning aspect of it. Sure. Like, these things are really, really bad, but if you can keep your threat below 40, who cares? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Unless you draw Ongolian Spawn as a shadow card. Yes. But I guess <laughs> the point is, is that, or that I see from it, is that it kind of, it's there to maybe train you into thinking, I need to keep my threat low. I need to do things to keep my threat low. And I need to hurry. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's, yeah, it's. <laughs> I was fine. Yeah. I was I was sneaking. I was sneaking by. I was making sure the Hummerhorns didn't notice me. And suddenly there's a gigantic spider, and I screamed, and all the Hummerhorns came and stung me. Yeah, exactly. And they're also in there so you can have an excuse to play Brock Iron Fist. <laughs> well, now, <laughs> <laughs> like the guy, the guy with Gimli's like, I'll engage him. I've got Brock in hand. <laughs> You know, like I'm, I'm sure that's it. So, do do we reckon that the revised core set, which presumably will give us three copies of Brock, will also up, up the uh, the card count to three lots of Hummer horns? <laughs> I hope that we almost no. have to for consistency's sake. Yeah, no. yeah it, it is though. It's very interesting that this card that is not found anywhere in the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit 
you have to go and find this Adventures of Tom Bombadil collection of poems is like the worst card, the hardest card to handle in the, the starting scenario. So I f- like, I almost feel like Hammerhorns and the Bats are the wrong way around. Mm. Like, switch the when revealed, switch the threat cost, the encounter, the, the, the engagement cost, sorry. And then I think thematically it kind of makes more sense. Because it is like you get to that that forty threat, and all of a sudden you're exhausted, and you you just need to stick on a fire and get warm and have some cooked food, and then these bats descend on you, and they do that, and they attack, and they deal all this damage, and then hammerhorns come and they attack you really easily because they're wasps, and wasps are angry, uh, but they don't do tons of damage; they just do a bit, and they cause you to. So so it's that must choose a character currently committed to a quest and remove that character from the quest. And that kind of feels like I was looking around for something, but actually I stumbled upon a nest of hammerhorns and now I'm just swatting them all away. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that would make sense. Uh, the hammerhorns have a victory five on them as well. I just realized that. Oh, yeah, so right away you're introduced to the uselessness of victory points. <laughs> well, they don't come back, though. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, another concept of the game to learn. That's one thing I've never done is kept score. Do you guys ever do that? Have you ever? Yeah, I uh, did early on because it said keep score. <laughs> <laughs> and we had like a score log and we're like, oh, you know, and then that quickly yeah. faded to just, I yeah. just want to be able to win. I don't care yeah. how well I win. Right. Uh, yeah, because I started. So, you know, once you start keeping score, you can't just stop. Not only do I keep score, I keep score and then I make a note in brackets of the old style score before they added in plus 10 points per round it took you. And it all sits on a massive spreadsheet, which after 10 years is so big that it takes about five minutes to open and nobody ever looks at. I want to see it. <laughs> I want well, to look now, at it. now I'm going to go look at it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, is that all of the critters and creatures we're going to That encounter? is the critters and creatures. It is, yeah. Well, thank you, Simon. That was awesome. That's okay. Thank you. So we're going to move into our Untroubled by Darkness. And James, you're going to give us this set here, right? Yep. Untroubled by Darkness. Emily aided Gander very little, except by his stout courage. At least he was not, as were most of the others, troubled by the mere darkness itself. Worship of the Ring. So yeah, this, this is going to be a, a segment where we, we take a look at, uh, at a treachery or two. Uh, you know, we, we're looking for something ideally that you know really pushes the story, or is you know, really relevant to the to the lore of the quest. Some, something unique uh, to this. And unfortunately, Passage Through Mirkwood doesn't doesn't really have that. Um, the The Passage Through Mirkwood set doesn't even have any treacheries. All of the treacheries in this quest either come from the, the Dolgaldor orcs or the spiders of Mirkwood set. So, yeah, it's it's not about a particular plan it's more kind of that you know this is the environmental challenge of, of making your way through a, a world that's been corrupted by the influence of sauron um you know necromancer's reach is is possibly the most recognizable treachery in the game uh you know it's got, it's got that, that brutal effect in just one damage to every exhausted character and then you know it's it's the huge lidless eye through a palantir so it's you know, I, I think it's quite iconic in that respect but I guess in terms of you know the the actual mechanics of this quest, caught in a web, 
um, you know, that probably ties in the most here, just because you know, it's, it's so many of the spiders we've got on the, the, these things about exhaustion. We've got the king spider exhausting you. Um, we've got that that location that Steve mentioned earlier. Was it the spawn, the glade of the spawn? Yep. Um, which again, I think that that exhaust characters when when spiders are uh, spiders are revealed. So yeah, just just another thing that that keeps your character exhausted, stops them from readying. Um, I, th I think the whole you have to pay two resources to ready is is a little bit odd. Um, I'm, I'm not quite <laughs> sure thematically what that is, but yeah, just 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 kind of another thing uh, slowing down your ability to to ready. And then I also wanted to to kind of highlight one of the ones from the nightmare version. Uh, I think this is yeah, it's one of the few quests where you know you might actually think, yeah, I fancy a little bit more of a challenge. I'll play that nightmare. Um, certainly don't think for much of the later stuff. But uh, there's there's a card in that called backtrack. Um, it's it's got a surge because uh, I think every card in nightmare has to surge, doesn't it? At, at least once. Um, but yeah, it's very simple when revealed. It's just when revealed, topmost enemy or location card in the encounter discard pile is returned to the staging area. And if you've got a great bit of art of someone, I think it might be Bilbo, just holding a map and scratching their head. It's, it's just this kind of idea of you know, we're, we're, we're lost in Mirkwood, we're going round and round in circles. And yeah, kind of as soon as you stray off the path, you, you think you know where you're going and suddenly you're back in the same place. You know, you you thought you'd explored that location well suddenly it's back in the staging area again so yeah that that, that one just felt like it yeah it does a it does a nice job of kind of giving you that that sense of being lost and, and a bit confused and disorientated yeah definitely um like in the hobbit the dwarves leave the trail right and they sort of wander they chase the the elf lights they get lost they come back they they get caught by the Spiders, like yeah, that backtrack's perfect theme-wise for anyone traveling in Mirkwood. I could just see putting this. You know, you're sitting there. You maybe you maybe following Bjorn's path to get out rather than having to to fight Ungoliant Spawn. But then Ungoliant Spawn comes out, but it's fine because you can you've got the allies there to defeat it, and then it goes into that discard, and then you draw this. Yeah, out. <laughs> <laughs> and Ungoliant Spawn does not have victory points, right? Because it's right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. So yeah. So whilst you're only losing one hero, and your hammer horns aren't coming back from this, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's those, gross. But, yeah, but I, th I think that those are definitely the ones that that stand out. Like that, you know, there's another which is discard all your events or everything in the staging area gets plus one threat. But again, they're they're all quite quite generic. It's those those ones I mentioned were, were the ones that kind of leap out as actually having a bit of a, a sense of lost in Mirkwood rather than just here's bad stuff. It's strange because that so the one that you just mentioned there, the player discards all event cards. It's uh, Eyes of the Forest. I think you're yeah. right. The when revealed effect of it is kind of like yeah, all right, okay, that's a thing. It happens. The card itself and the art. I think is really, really like. I love the name. I love the art, and I think it's really thematic to Mirkwood. Like you're walking through, and uh, it's like when they're they're pitching their camps at night, and and Bilbo does talk about how there's these these eyes that are watching them, and he can see them, and they're kind of insectoid eyes, and yeah, it kind of brings that theme in for me. Do you want to read us the quote then? Oh yeah, I didn't realize it was on the card. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was what you were referring to. 
Uh, so that is the quote I'm referring to. I just didn't realize it was on the card. <laughs> he would see gleams in the darkness round them, and sometimes pairs of yellow or red or green eyes would slowly stare at him from a little distance, and then slowly fade and disappear, and slowly shine out again in another place. There's a lot of slowlies there. Well, that's slowly. Night, night, young master Tolkien, uh, sweet dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Spiders will be watching you from the dark. Kid probably had like twelve nightlights around his room. Oh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I I probably wouldn't because that would make it easier to see the spiders. True, but you wouldn't see their little glowing red eyes. That's true. But the bats would come. The bats. Of course, then the bats would come in the moss. Yeah. That kid is just—he's he's a kid is wrecked. Regardless, <laughs> feel bad for him. Um. Wow. I think you're right. The uh, the caught in the web, the necromancer's reach, backtrack. They they all give you a good feel of where you're at. Um, eyes in the dark. They they play well. I think in setting the mood, at least for where you're at. That kind of leads us into our segment, campfire tales, where we just kind of look at the whole thing as a as a full story being told to us. Daniel, why don't you read us the quote and take us in there? It is a fair tale. Though it is sad, as are all the tales of Middle-earth, and yet it may lift up your hearts. So here we're going to talk about the story being told to us in the scenario, where we speak on the narrative, flavor of the quest, kind of what we think about it in general. Um, yeah, and sort of give a grade to the, to the, to the scenario itself. Um, I, I love this scenario both for you know the memories of it but also i like that in in the bigger story like i don't know when i first bought this box if i knew that it would lead to six chapter pack things later you know what i mean hmm. like i just thought it was three quests in this box not necessarily a larger campaign does it even say something about that in the rule book like that this starts a cycle i don't know i don't know either and so like but then when you think about it as a nine a nine scenario thing you don't really know why you're doing what you're doing in this scenario, which I think is great. Like, I, we just got to go from here to there. Um, what happens when we get there? I have no idea. And I, I think that's great for a narrative. It's mysterious. You're going through a land of mystery for some reason. Um, it's a great call to adventure. I love this. Yeah, and it's a believable quest for a bunch of nobodies. Like, when I say nobody, <laughs> yeah. like... you. Right? You are, this is the very first thing you're doing. You're just going to carry a message from one place to another and get totally caught up in Mirkwood, in the, the land of Middle-earth. Right. Anyone could be doing it, right? And if you don't necessarily look at your heroes as the ones going on the quest, but you're going on the quest, it gives you that, like, yeah, oh, great, I can run this letter from here to there. Let's do it. And then all these misadventures along the way. Yeah, when you think about it, like, lore-wise, though, it's it's funny because like yes you the player are nobody doing this quest but like hey Gimli Legolas Eowyn can you take this letter right and so in that way it's strange but also beautiful I mean at this point in the game's life you could play this quest with Galadriel and Thranduil as two of your heroes <laughs> true, true. <laughs> just Thranduil stood there I Thranduil charge you Thranduil to take this letter to Galadriel, who is with you. Right now. 
both of you must travel to Lorien so you can present it to her there in her proper place. Right. It just won't read right if it's in like Thranduil's cave. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> it's been written using moon runes. Ah, uh, yes. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you have to look at the story of the scenario with and leave the players out of it, right? Like if you leave the heroes and the players out of the actual quest, yeah, that's absolutely. a really nice story, right? Who's going on this adventure? And in much later scenarios, when we get the story in the quest inserts, it'll just say the heroes, right? Right. Because, right. And you, you have to sort of ignore the fact of who you're actually playing and just look at the, the tale uh, the developers are telling. Right. Yeah. I mean, from that perspective, I think we do, we have to look at it from a, a kind of a point of if this was this setting but you weren't able to play with heroes that you know and love would it be the same and i think the answer is no so even if you've got to play people like we were saying earlier putting that sort of belief to one side about timelines and everything else do you enjoy this game more for playing with heroes that you love in a scenario that they might not have been in and i think the answer is yes or at least it is for me oh definitely yes absolutely yeah, if every hero was a FFG made up unknown character, it would not be as yeah. much fun. Like Gondorian Soldier X, or <laughs> right. you who's know, exactly like the kind Hobbit of person y. that will get charged with a letter? You know, so yeah, yeah. It really Aaron is Gondorian Ryder. Soldier X or Elf Scout. Yeah, B. So. Yeah, but yeah, just, just imagine going to a friend. Oh, you, 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 you like card games? You like Lord of the Rings? Oh, I've got this amazing game. Yeah, it's great. You can, you can, you can play as Kaldara and Melond and Thalin. <laughs> uh, yeah, as far as story goes, I think the the story that this quest presents is fantastic. Is as we've said several times already, it's instantly recognisable if you've read The Hobbit. Um, Kind of the purpose is recognizable if you've watched Lord of the Rings or, or read Lord of the Rings, sorry, or watched it, I guess, either, either or. Um, yeah, it, it's a great introduction that if you've got the slightest bit of knowledge of Lord of the mm-hmm. Rings, you're going to be like, I recognize this. And if you don't, and you've just gone and picked up the game because you've thought that looks like a cool game, I think it's got enough story in there through the locations, the enemies, the treacheries, the quest cards themselves, that you would be engaged. And you could be like, oh, this is so cool. I'm taking this message from person A to person B, and I'm doing all these things along the way. And, you know, I, th- I think you can easily forget by the time you've got nine cycles and eight saga boxes and seven cycles of Arkham and however many boxes champions. But this was essentially the first ever scenario for a cooperative Card game in of, yeah. of this type, so yeah. you know, what whilst there's kind of little things where I might think, oh, I'd, I'd like if that was a little bit more thematic, or if some of the geography was was a bit more. Actually, this you know, th- th- this was cre- this essentially created a whole new style of playing games. So the fact that they they got so much of it so right first time out, I think, is a yeah, it's an astonishing accomplishment, really. Yeah, yeah that's a great that's a great point, and it's not. I mean. The story of this particular quest is what it is. It's also like begins the story of the whole game. And so it also, how it works to establish mood is fantastic. Yeah. Um, As an adaptation of Tolkien's works, 
I think they've done a wonderful job. I, I have played other Middle Earth focused games, right? That aren't the adaptation is not as good. You don't feel the same or you're questioning the whole time. I don't know if you guys play the video games like Shadows of Mordor, Shadows of War. Like it, it, you don't know what time that's in and golems running around and there's this weird like ah it, it kind of feels like it but not really. But this one mm-hmm. this one it feels like it. It you you're there, right? They did a great job subcreating something he made that I think, you know, everyone involved in should be very proud about so right well this was a wonderful round table gentlemen thank you so much yeah thanks thank uh, you too yeah i had a thanks, great thank you for, for joining us together. slash having us <laughs> listening for however many hours this is yeah uh, we're gonna come back eventually and uh talk about the anduin and maybe dole door and work our way through some more stories and uh yeah, I hope everyone enjoyed it. I, I had a great time talking Lord of the Rings. Absolutely. Definitely. Well, yeah, so as, as everyone says, thank you thank you for joining us. Uh, Simon, if the uh, if the listeners wanted to get in touch with us, how, how could they go about doing that? Uh, so they can find our blog with all of our previous episodes of the Card Game Cooperative and any future episodes of The Lore of the Rings at tcgcoop.design.blog. Uh, they can email us at tcgcoop at gmail.com. They can add us on Twitter at Card Cooperative or find us on Facebook by searching for The Card Game Cooperative. Uh, they can also find you, James, on Discord. What's your Discord name? Uh, I am Mighty Jim 6786 It's 6768 according to my notes here, but I'm sure they'll be able to find you anyway. I'm looking at Discord <laughs> and it's 6786, so this may be the first time we've ever given that information out correctly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Steve and Dan, how can people contact you guys or listen to you in other ways? Well, sure, they can find us. We are Critical Encounters Pod at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at um, Critical Encounters and YouTube. Just search the Critical Encounters podcast and you get some playthroughs there. Um, Steve is Vardane on Discord. I'm Big Foam Loaf. And we're also joined by our good friend Mike Wandering Took. Um, yeah. So again, guys, thanks so much for having us. Strider, take us out. There are some things that it is better to begin than to refuse, even though the end may be dark. Oh, wow. So we always have a cat meowing in the background, so it's really going to feel like a card game cooperative podcast. Yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> Apparently, we have crickets in ours. Yes. Well, for a few episodes, Daniel's window is open, and you could just hear the crickets outside, like, really loudly. <laughs> did, I, I did notice that a few times and wondered if the, this was, like, some kind of in-joke where it's, uh, you know, that th- this is, like, you know, designed as everyone just going, what the heck is Dan talking about? Nobody's listening to him. <laughs> right. it is. Yeah. yeah, just... Yeah. More boring Daniel stuff. <laughs>